You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Kunech Hidi Northern Light United Church on December 13, 2022. Co-hosts for the evening were Jane Hale and David Noon. The theme was Holiday Hullabaloo. The profit recipient for the event was the Juno Refugee Relief Fund. Live music was performed by Deborah Wood. All right, for our first storyteller, we've got uh, Kylie Ferguson. Uh, Kylie Ferguson discovered her love of storytelling at the New Orleans Center of Creative Arts since then. She's been collaborating on theater projects in St. Louis, London, and now at Juno. She is thankful to Perseverance Theater for allowing her the opportunity to dive into this community. She's fallen in love with the seafood, the trails, and of course, meeting everyone's dogs. Welcome to the stage for the first time, Kylie Ferguson. So here's what you need to know. I am bad at directions. I have always been bad at directions, and my family knows I am bad at directions. So everything you are about to hear is only partially, mostly my fault. So I'm from New Orleans, so every year growing up, we got one week off for Mardi Gras. Very fun time, very lovely time. Party. Um, so this year I was looking at school, so I was like, hey family, do you mind if we take a little February road trip to the Midwest to check out some colleges? And my family's like, sure, great, no problem. Unfortunately, my brother had also negotiated a, pl- a trip to Washington, D.C. And as some of you geography aficionados may have noticed, the U.S. Capitol is in fact not in the Midwest. So it was going to be a very long week. So we're going north of Louisiana for about two days and we discovered snow and hills and ice scrapers and how to drive in snow. I was in the back, I had a book, I was not paying attention, but we seemed to make pretty good time because then we started heading eastwards. And here's the highlights of DC. Uh, I wanted to see the Pentagon. So I mapped us to the Pentagon and I somehow mapped us into the Pentagon, like with the gate and everything. So instead of being the cute little Southern tourists we were trying to be, we were then pulling a very illegal U-turn. Other fun things we learned existed, three lane traffic circles. So we're going round and then we're still going around and then we're still trying to get around and none of the other cars appreciated that. So we decided no more driving. We're just gonna Uber everywhere, Uh, except It took about 30, 40 minutes to get two miles. So we're not Ubering. We're walking everywhere. 
which means about 12 miles a day, just crisscrossing between the different museums. It was a great time, but we had a lot of calories that we then needed to consume. So this is about halfway through the week, and we need food. It's late in the evening, and if your mother is anything like my mother, she's not picky, as long as you suggest the one thing she's thinking of in that moment. So we are swiping through the app. And we're like, no, 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 she's shooting everything down. So we jump into the car, we're risking it, it's worth it. And we're just driving around looking for some type of food. And we find a chicken place, fantastic. We jump on it before she changes her mind. So we run in, and that's when my mom finds out that drinks are three to four dollars. Now my mom is like bargain shopper champion. And I think she could sense that her credentials, her crown was about to be called into question. But she played it cool. She played it very cool. We went, we got to the little soda machine, we, we filled up our little drinks, and we were excited because we only got soda on holidays. So we sit down, and she brings us all in very, very close, and she says, we are not leaving this restaurant until everyone gets at least four to five refills. <laughs> so we're like, game on, let's go for the soda. I get four, my sister gets four, my brother, the overachiever that he is, he goes for five. So we leave the restaurant now, and we're looking for a Krispy Kreme's donut place. It's the holidays. We're getting dessert. So I'm in the passenger seat. Passenger picks music and gives directions. It's a heavy burden, I know, because I'm only good at one of those things. So we, I see the map, and my phone's being a little laggy, if I'm being totally honest. And like I can kind of see where we're going, and it's getting a little dark, and there's a lot of hills. My mom does not like elevation. We're from Louisiana. And my brother gets very carsick. So I'm not saying I was being set up for failure, but some odds were not in my favor. So we get to the point that my mom's like, hmm, been a little bit since we've seen another car. We are somewhere in Virginia, and my sister goes, I have to use the bathroom. It's not a problem. We're like 10 minutes away from a Krispy Kreme donut place. And then 10 minutes passes, and there is no Krispy Kreme donut place. In fact, there is nothing there at all. And I'm, I'm looking at the map, and I'm like, ooh, maybe I, uh, maybe I had that backwards. Maybe there was, a, there was like a crossover, and we just hit the wrong overpass for the crossover. My family gives me about three minutes of grace. And they're like, maybe it's a little further back. It's not there. In fact, we are in a ghost town. There is no stores open at all. And now my brother is like, hey, I also have to use the bathroom. Four to five sodas, everybody. <laughs> There's not a lot of places to put it. It's not looking well. But we've given up on dessert. And we're just like, find the nearest bathroom. So I am searching for some type of place on my phone that might have an open bathroom. And my brother and my sister are searching for some type of place that might have a bathroom. And my mom's asking for directions because she's driving and we don't have directions. And everyone's a little stressed out right now because we all have to use the bathroom. And then finally, we look off to the side, because we're no longer on back streets. We are like fully onto the interstate, and we see a glorious gas station sign. Because gas stations have bathrooms. So we pull off into the exit ramp, and we immediately hit traffic. Standstill traffic. Three minutes later, we're still not moving. We can see the gas station, we just can't get to it. It is make it or break it moment. So my brother and sister jump out the car. They run down the hill. They are now climbing over any type of like uh, an iron fence, running into that gas station. I'm like, hallelujah. 
Woo, off my plate, I'm great at directions. Um, except this gas station did not have a bathroom. So they come out one minute later, a little pissy if we're being honest, and they're back in and we're staying there waiting in the car, but we eventually start to move. Uh, I now really also have to use the bathroom, but I value my life and I got us into this situation. So I'm not saying anything. So once again, we're just looking, we're trying to find any type of place, we're going anywhere, and finally, we find a grocery store that is open. It is the only light we can see in this entire town. And before the wheels have even stopped, we are out of the door, running into this grocery store, trying to find that one corner of the store that has the bathroom in it. So like all Mardi Gras times, there was a little too much drinking. There was a little bit of a family argument. And my mother, God bless her, still wanted Krispy Kremes. Thank you. Okay, our next storyteller is Christine Southall. Uh, Christine has lived in Juneau for the last six years. She is currently the sous chef at the Jorgensen House, but has had many different jobs around town throughout the years. You can typically see her in the service industry or out in Pelican in the summers. Uh, she's excited to be joining the Medrooms, Mudrooms tradition with a holiday hullabaloo story. So let's have a big hand for Christine Southall. My name is Christine, and I'm currently 29 years old. I've lived in Juneau for the last six years, but I've lived most of my life outside Chicago. I was originally born in Zabuelos Q, Paraguay, down in South America. My brother and I were adopted by our parents after living there for over a year. I call the Chicagoland area my home, and I'm forever grateful for the sacrifice and unwavering love my parents showed and continue to show. That being said, there are some things that are different since I'm not a natural-born citizen. I have a certificate of foreign birth. I spent my first couple years in the U.S. on a green card, and I can never be president. <laughs> Once my naturalization ceremony was completed, I became a full citizen of the U.S. of A. and no longer needed my green card because I was issued a passport. You cannot have a U.S. green card and a U.S. passport because you need to be a U.S. citizen to get a passport. Remember that one. <laughs> I had the pleasure of going to St. Louis University, go Bellicans, for undergrad. In my senior year, a few friends and I decided we would go to the Dominican Republic for spring break holiday. I was friends with mostly international students and students who had the privilege to travel all over the world. So with our extensive backpacking and hostel experience, we decided we did not need to do the all-inclusive ver version of Punta Cana. With my multiple tries at passing Spanish too, previous summer of studying in Madrid, and unwavering confidence, I found a cheap Airbnb in town and nothing could stop us. Because our plan was to survive off empanadas and rum all week, we booked the cheapest flight we could find. We flew from St. Louis to Atlanta, then Atlanta to Punta Cana. It was five in the morning, and I was standing at the Southwest Airlines check-in counter in St. Louis with my backpack and a hangover that could only come from an all-night frat party celebrating the fact we were going on holiday. If only I knew this is where my chaos would begin. The nice woman at the counter was checking us in since it was an international flight, 
And one of my favorite questions was asked as she looked at my passport with confusion. So, um, where are you from? Now, my passport looks just like yours and is blatantly a U.S. passport. I responded in the best way I could with my sunglasses still on due to the fluorescent lights. I grew up in Chicago, but I was born in Paraguay. The woman responded, oh, so you were Paraguayan and from Paraguay. Now, you responsible world travelers out there can see where this is going, but I, a hungover 22-year-old who wanted to just get through security for the first mojito of many to come, did not see where this was going. Yes, I am Paraguayan, but I've spent most of my life outside Chicago, and I am so pumped to go to Punta Cana. She typed a lot of stuff in the computer, took our backpacks, and off we went. The week in Punta Cana was exhilarating. I knew more Spanish than we thought and met some really awesome locals who showed us their lovely town. We ate fresh fish, rolled cigars on the beach with the elders, listened to live music, saw a family-run Carlfee farm, and got to go to an old rum cave. We were living the high life, and the week came to a close rapidly. The day before we went to start the journey home, we were all checking into our flights on a new friend's Wi-Fi connection. My friends all checked in fine, and then it was my turn. Well, when I went to check in on the website, it was asking for my green card number. That's strange. I haven't had a green card in years. So I entered my passport number with no luck. I backed out of the website and tried again, but it was still asking for my green card number. Now I was nervous. I only had WhatsApp over Wi-Fi to make phone calls, and I didn't know what was going on. So I called Southwest, and they said since I wasn't a U.S. citizen, I needed to enter my green card number to get back in the U.S., or I'd have to go back to Paraguay. I tried to explain that I was looking at my U.S. passport and did not have a green card because I am a U.S. citizen. They said that's not possible because it shows I am a Paraguayan citizen and, then, and thus cannot have a U.S. passport. So, uh, where are you from? That moment at the airport a week ago all came back to me. So I called back and said there was a mistake and they needed to change my citizenship from Paraguay to the United States. To no surprise, that's not something they just take your word for <laughs> and do over a spotty phone call. They should... They said there's no way I have a U.S. passport because those are only for citizens, and if I tried to use a fake passport, I could potentially get flown to New York to await my deportation to Paraguay. <laughs> to say I freaked out was an understatement. Paraguay, Paraguay, I barely spoke any Spanish. I could order food and beer and tell someone I needed to go to the bathroom, but I couldn't go to Paraguay. Where was I going to go when I landed in Paraguay? Walk up to the orphanage and hope they remembered me? <laughs> go knock on the door at the hotel my parents lived in with us for over a year and say, hey, remember the tall white Americans that lived here back in 94 and had two little Paraguayan babies? Yeah, well, the loud round one is me, and I guess I live here now, so if you have a spot in the kitchen, I'll be on my way. <laughs> I was pissed and scared and didn't know what to do. Luckily, we had not drank too much rum at that point, and my friend suggested I call my parents since they originally got us out of Paraguay. That was a dad-level problem, so I called my father and told him what happened, and he told me to stay calm since we knew my passport was, was not fake. I could go to the embassy in the Dominican Republic, but not go to the airport till we figured it out. My father was the original U.S. citizen who claimed me when we flew home from Paraguay and was able to call Southwest Airlines to clear up the misunderstanding. 
He called me and said I was all checked in and there should be no issue the next day, but if there was to stay in the DR and he would come down and get me. Thank God he was calm because I was already set in my new life as a Paraguayan spinster, dreaming of a life that would never be as my brother got my room in life as an American. (laughs) You thought I was sweating on the way to the DR at security because of my hangover? You should have seen me on the way home. I told my friends that one should go through security first, then me, then another. That way, if I got stuck somewhere, at least one could call my folks or or fly back to the U.S., Luckily, my father was right, and my passport cleared, and I was able to get back to Atlanta. The relief I had landing in Atlanta was only short of my parents flying in all those years ago with their two young children excited to be back in their home country. Just like my father said to my mother back then, we can walk home to Chicago from Atlanta. We are in the U.S., and that's all that matters now. This experience was a huge misunderstanding, and now I do not leave town without my passport. International domestic flights, seaplane flights, ferry rides, bus trips, cross-country road trips, train rides, I have my passport. This is just a small, small issue compared to those waiting for citizenship or willing to sacrifice everything for a better life in the U.S. This holiday hullabaloo taught me a very important lesson. I am Paraguayan. My hometown is outside Chicago. I am a U.S. citizen. And I could not be more proud of the journey that got me all three of those answers to. So, um, where are you from? Thank you. Uh, Next, we've got Bob Coghill here. Uh, Bob Coghill will be celebrating his 71st Midnight Mass in Alaska this year. He was uh, raised in the Tanana River village of Nanana. Uh, He's going to tell us about Christmas Eve 1965. Thank you. Um, So I'm wearing my kilt today. This is not a story about Scotland. This is a story about the middle of Alaska, long before there was a pipeline and long before civilization had reached Alaska. So it was 1965. It was Christmas Eve. We were um, in this little village, and it was 45 degrees below zero. There were two dog teams that resided in town, and they were totally quiet because it was too cold to make sounds. There were dog teams around the perimeter, which were really good for keeping wolves, but I think the wolves were, were also hiding from the cold. But around 10 o'clock, 10.30, all of the Roman Catholics and Anglicans, Episcopalians, started to make their way to church for for midnight mass. The Protestants in town had already been to their Christmas Eve service, which happens about the same time that the bars close. So everything was really quiet. The northern lights were above Taglatili Hill. Um, They were doing their dancing heel and toe bit, making their crackling sounds, if you believe that. And, um, and we were making our way to church. Well, my job that Christmas Eve was to be an alkalite. So I had a little red cassock, and I had a white surplus, and I had, I had red hair, too. And just looked just as cute as can be. And I had, before the church service started, when, before 
all the people arrived. I had gone through the church and lit candles on these iron chandeliers that must have come from, I don't, who knows where they came from, big massive things with dozens of candles. And I went and I lit all those candles while looking straight up and getting very dizzy. And um, so I had all these candles lit. I had the candles on the altars lit, which is the job of the, of the acolyte. And then I went to the rectory next door to the church and we all got fixed up and we proceeded across to the church next door on the, on the snow. And at 45 degrees below zero, the snow is like concrete. I don't know whether I was wearing shoes or mucklucks, but something appropriate. And we got to the church and the church was packed. All of, I got confirmed the, the May before this and all of the kids that I got confirmed with were there. Louie and Henry Thomas were there. Um, Marie was there, she's the one I learned how to square dance with. Susie Speck was there, she's the one, the first girl I ever kissed at like age six. Um, everybody was there and this church maybe holds 75 people, they were all there. And people were, were flowing out the door into the 70 below, into the 45 below weather. And it was, it was cozy. So we processed up, up the, through the altar, through the aisle to the, to the little um, altar. And look, looking out at the crowd, there were my family, my sister and my mom and dad, my uncle and aunt and his children. There were 15 Coghills in there, in that group. There were um, another 20 or so Charlies, a bunch of Dementos. Now the Dementos were, that we had one family of Dementos. There was another family of Dementos that went to the Roman Catholic Church. But, um, you know, dad decided he didn't, didn't want to go to the same church that mom went to, so, so we got a, a bunch of Dementos. There were, um, there were people that I grew up with and people that I still keep in constant contact with. And we were there at the altar. I was there at the altar. For the first time, there were two acolytes, but the other guy had never done this before. And he was carrying the cross, and I was whispering directions to him as we pro processed up. And I went, okay, go left, go left. Um, and, you know, just... Stand when I stand, sit when I sit, kneel when I kneel. And, um, and, that's, and he was being very good about that. So we got up there. The priest welcomed everybody. Um, then they had some readings of, of, of church things, like some, probably something from Isaiah, something from Matthew, and we you know, all remembered all those ancient, ancient stories. And um, then the next stage was... To, um, to, to bless all the things. And to do that, the acolyte gives the wine and the water and the bread to the priest, and he does things with them. And then I had accomplished all of that. It was time for the priest to do his holy words, and I was on my knees, and I had done all of my tasks. My, my job was done. I fainted. I fainted, and I rolled down the steps. Thump, 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 thump. I came to rest against the altar rail, and, um, and my mother came and gathered me up and, and 
took me out into the cold. Well, Joe, the other acolyte, I had told him, do what I do. <laughs> so down he went. And, and his mother came and gathered him up. Well, Joe and his mom were done. This was enough. My mom, you know, got me some fresh air. We went back in, took communion, and all was well. And I, now I have a story that has stuck with me for uh, 50 more years. And it's a, it's a good story. One I share with nearly everyone who was an alkalite for any length of time in the Catholic Church, Lutherans, Episcopalians. And so to those of you who may have had that experience or will one day have that experience, this is your story. Our next storyteller is uh, Skylar Bayer. Skylar moved from New England to Alaska with her husband Tom and two dogs three months ago to work for NOAA. Uh, for almost a decade, she has told stories for the Corner, Risky, Risk, Story District, uh, um, Roth Story Slams, and the Story Collider, where she is also a producer. Uh, to listen to more of her stories, including the sequel to tonight's story, check out the Story Collider podcast. Uh, please welcome Skylar Bayer. So... I was 25, and I just arrived to my parents' house the night before Thanksgiving, Wednesday night. And probably an hour after I got in the door, their phone rang, an actual landline, <laughs> not my cell phone. And my mom hands me the phone, and it's my cardiologist. And I can hear her voice. It's very clear, it's very calm, and it's very instructive. And it says you need to come to the hospital now. And the reason for this call is that for the last few weeks, I've been really, really sick. Um, I'd sleep 12 hours a day. I felt exhausted. And the thing that really bothered me, though, was I'd have these single little heart arrhythmias through the day. Kind of felt like tiny pricks that I couldn't control inside my chest. Um, and that really bothered me because the day I was born, I'd had open heart surgery. So I was very concerned for my well-being, and I had insisted on getting all these tests done. And one of the tests that they had done is they'd put what's called a halter monitor, which is like this old Walkman-style thing that's attached to you that listens to your heart for 24 hours. And in my sleep a week ago... I had had a really fast heart rhythm for a little too long, um, and if you're in the medical field, I had 36 beats of ventricular tachycardia, and so basically I almost had a heart attack in my sleep and died, and I didn't even wake up uh, to feel it, and I slept right through it, woke up the next day and mailed in the tape, not knowing anything better. So I tell my parents we have to go, and of course they're shocked. And I'm shocked, and I'm also a little angry that I'm missing Thanksgiving. Turkey is my favorite meat. Um, and so this is uh, the Boston area, so we drive through, actually not that much traffic for once, um, to the hospital. And it's strange, right? Like, 
At the emergency room, you wait forever when you have like limbs literally falling off, but you know, doctor says you have to be admitted. You walk right to the registration desk, they desk, they slap a little bracelet on you, wheel you off to a very cold and sterile bed in a hospital room, hammer in an IV. <laughs> Um, I remember my hand feeling really bruised after that. Um, and then they tell me that because it's the four-day Thanksgiving weekend, that I will not be seeing my primary doctor until Monday. So I had a four-day holiday weekend of loneliness and dread ahead of me, all because I mailed in a tape of my crappy heartbeats, and it was like the worst possible outcome of sharing a homemade mixtape, right? Like... <laughs> From the heart, no less. <laughs> so um, I'm so alone in this hospital room that when I am visited, it feels like I'm being haunted almost because I'm so alone most of the time. And my visitations that weekend from people felt like uh, a poorly adapted, made-for-lifetime television, modern twist on Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, but Thanksgiving American style. Um, of course, also a medical drama. So my parents and brother uh, came to visit me, and they were like the ghosts of Thanksgiving past. They, <laughs> they're very sad, but also very full. Um, <laughs> they brought leftovers, but it wasn't, wasn't really the same. Then I had another friend who's from Hawaii, but she lives in Boston, and so she wasn't going to go all the way home, so she was bouncing around having her best Friendsgiving life, and she came and visited me, so she was the ghost of Thanksgiving present. I was 25. I should be doing that. And then I got a phone call from a longtime family friend, Sam, and Sam calls me. He's like, oh, you know just so terrible what you're going through. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you know, Corey dumped you not long ago. And now your heart is like killing you. <laughs> I mean, man, your life's just terrible. And I like looked at the phone and like, this can't be real. And also this man is a therapist. <laughs> And I feel bad for his patients. <laughs> but I'm a little worried that he's, he's right, that this is just absolutely terrible. And so when I feel anxious uh, about a lot of things, I turn to humor. And so I'm frantically looking around my hospital room, and I see my, my bay windows, and there are uh, construction workers, sexy construction workers, maybe, because it's the middle of November, and they're about the size of ants. But I latch on to this idea, and so every time that the nurses or doctors come through, the, the few that are around, they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, it's an excellent view. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the construction workers. And of course, the doctors don't get it because they're doctors. But the nurses are hysterical, and I think they're more hysterical because the doctors don't get it. <laughs> so Monday comes, comes along, and I have like 40 doctors come see me because I am the medical mystery of the floor. And so I pass my, my construction worker joke over and over again, and you know it's terrible over and over again. But I finally get to see my doctor, and he tells me that we don't know what's wrong with you, but tomorrow at 6 a.m. you're going to have surgery, and we're going to find out. And they're going <laughs> to cut a hole into my thigh, 
and put up uh, a wire and play a game of operation, well, it's the opposite of operation, where they're going to zap my heart instead of trying not to zap my heart. Um, and they might put a camera up there, too. And so it's nighttime, and I'm waiting for my 6 a.m. surgery, and I'm terrified. And so I grab, like, 14 sheets of white printer paper, and I have, like, a black and a purple and a red magic marker, and I tape all this into a giant sign that's for the construction workers. <laughs> it can fill the entire window. <laughs> and I frantically fill in all these block letters, and I have a giant heart on it, and I have pictures of shirts flying around like birds, and it says, have a heart and take off your shirt. <laughs> and <laughs> my hope is that someone that next day while I was in surgery, someone somewhere out there would see it and laugh because it is out of a children's hospital window. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on December 13th, 2022. The theme was Holiday Hullabaloo. Do you have a story you'd like to tell? To find out the dates and themes for our upcoming shows, visit us at mudrooms.org. All right, uh, we've got three more stories. We're going to start with our next one, uh, Michael Budikoffer, uh, who has lived in Juneau for 12 and a half years and for seven years prior to that up in Anchorage. He loves getting out with his dog, Willow, and hiking the numerous trails that Juno has to offer, and at minimum, goes for a stroll down the street on most days. He's the father of five, a civil engineer at Greens Creek. He's a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the holiday season is his favorite time of the year. Welcome to the stage, Michael Budikoff. So uh, if you're going to move to Alaska, December is probably not the right time of the year to move here, but uh, that's when we moved here in uh, December of 2003. So leading up to that move, um, well, I had worked in Alaska for several summers previously, and we loved it here in Alaska, and so we wanted to, to move here when I graduated and got my civil engineering degree. But uh, I wasn't able to find a job um, in my Former employers weren't interested, I guess. So um, I looked elsewhere, and I found a job in Evanston, Wyoming, and they, they offered me a position there. But when uh, my wife and I went to visit Evanston, um, we really weren't impressed. It was dusty and windy, and we went to the Walmart, and uh, all the fashion there was about 10 years old, and, and uh, there were a lot of mullets. And so my, uh, my wife said, um, you know, if you want to move to Evanston, go, right, go, go for it, but I'm not coming with you. Um, she said, uh, but maybe, if you, uh, you sh maybe you should try Alaska again. So, so I did, and, and I was able to find a job with a, a little firm in, in Anchorage, Alaska. But being an entry-level civil engineer, they weren't really interested in paying my travel up to 
Alaska, so we had to, to beg and plead and sell stuff, and, and uh, we packed everything we owned, or as much as we could anyway, into a, uh, a minivan with a car topper, and, and we got rid of everything else, and, um, and uh, off we went to Alaska. So we, we uh, with finals and everything, um, we, we moved just shortly after graduation. Um, I, uh, I didn't really have much time to prepare to move. My uh, wife was, was three months pregnant with our fourth child, and so we, uh, so we cut it kind of close. We only had two days to make it to Bellingham to get on the ferry, and um, the trip was going pretty good until we got to Seattle on I-5 at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, so we got stuck in Seattle for three hours, and then uh, we finally made it to Bellingham at about 10 o'clock at night. And, um, you know, being the good parents that we were, you know, we talked up our kids and like, you know, we're going to stay at a hotel tonight in Bellingham. Just be good today, and you can get to go swimming when we get there. Yeah, we rolled into Bellingham at 10 o'clock, and we were exhausted. You know, just we'd been through all sorts that week. So, But uh, we relented, we went swimming, and uh, we got to bed at midnight. So... We were exhausted the next morning, and we slipped right through our alarm. We woke up, and um, it was two hours till we were supposed to be on the ferry leaving. We were already supposed to be at the dock, so, but, but you know, being poor people like we were, we knew we couldn't afford to feed our family for, for four days on the ferry, so we, so we hurried as fast as we could to a grocery store, grabbed some bread, grabbed peanut butter and jam, uh, got some crackers and stuff, and, and some diapers, and and, uh, and we made it to the ferry, and they were nice enough to let us, let us on. They were, they were about ready to start boarding. And uh, so we got in there. We staked out our little area in the main area of the ferry and uh, had with our um, air mattresses and our sleeping bags. We couldn't afford a cabin, of course. So, um, And off we went. Well, <laughs> in December, it's really stormy, right? My poor wife, being three months pregnant, she was, she was pretty darn sick. But, but the kids and I, we had a ball. We... You know, with all the waves, we'd run up and down, run back and forth, and you'd go really slow and then fast, and really slow and then fast. And and uh, anyway, at any rate, we we made it to uh, we made it to Haines, and uh, when we got to Haines, there was two feet of snow and two feet of fresh snow, and the pass was closed, so we had to stay the night. And um, and we finally were able to get out at two o'clock the next day. It was the it was the twenty third of December, and. Uh, we had made friends with a bunch of people in the Army and uh, Air Force that were on their way up to Eielson and um, Fort Wainwright. And uh, so we, we decided we were going to caravan with these guys up to, uh, up to Toke Junction, and then we'd go to Anchorage, and they'd go up to Fairbanks. Well, all these people were from California and Texas, and so that didn't last very long. And uh, me not being a non-commissioned officer in the Air Force or Army, I, I wasn't, they, of course, they weren't going to let me lead the caravan. So, so we passed them, and away we went. And... Uh, and the, and the trip was going nice and smooth, and, and uh, everybody was asleep. It was dark, of course. We were near Glen Allen, and uh, all of a sudden, there's five caribou right in the middle of the road. So I slam on my brakes, and we literally do a 360. And, uh, but we stayed on the road, didn't hit a caribou, so that was good. So once, once we collected our, ourselves again and made sure everybody was safe, we, uh, we continued on to Anchorage. And uh, we get into Anchorage, and it's... Uh, you know, 10 degrees, 12 inches of fresh snow on the ground. It was dark. We couldn't figure out what lane to drive in on, the, um, on Seward Highway. And, um, 
Anyway, we pulled into town, got a hold of our new uh, landlord, um, got the keys to our apartment, and uh, went to go to our apartment, and it was, uh, it was in Mountain View. <laughs> and if anybody you know Anchorage, Mountain View is the worst part of Anchorage. And, uh, <laughs> and the apartment was kind of a dump. You know, we had had some friends look at it, you know, for us, and it, we had a list of apartments that were in our budget, and they, they thought this was the best one. And apparently, you know, they'd only been in Alaska for, for a few months, and so they didn't realize what they were getting us into either. So, um, But anyway, we settled in. We took a nap. We were so tired. And then we got up in the afternoon, went out and did all of our Christmas shopping as fast as we could before all the stores closed, got back, set up Christmas, and we had a very Merry Christmas Okay, our next storyteller is uh, Marissa Kuhn. Uh, she uh, moved uh, from the deserts of Utah to the lush rainforest of Juneau four years ago. She's also the grandfather of Santa. Granddaughter of Santa, I'm sorry. I blew it. Oh, goodness. I am so happy that I cannot see any of you right now. This is great. So did you know that Santa actually lived in Arizona? And I know what you're thinking, Marissa. No, he didn't. Well, he did. And I know because I am the granddaughter of Santa. And I know what you're thinking, Marissa. <laughs> no, you're not. Well, join the rest of my second grade class who also did not believe me. Okay, so I would go around, tell everyone that Santa is, in fact my grandfather. And they didn't believe me. They didn't believe me. So I brought him to show and tell, because that's what you do. Show them, tell them. It's great. So Santa came, and he had his whole regalia on, and Mrs. Claus was there, who, you know, was my nana. And they handed out these ornaments and candy canes, and everyone was like, oh my gosh, Santa's here. And I said, yeah, I told you that he was going to be here because he's my grandpa. And they said, no, he's, we need proof that he's actually Santa. And I said, well, ask him anything. And they said, okay, name all the reindeer. And he said, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, and you know, and he said the whole list. I can't say it because I'm not Santa. I don't know all the reindeer. <laughs> so they, they were like, oh my gosh, he knows all the reindeer. He is Santa. And I said, duh. I've only tried to tell you this a million times. They're like, fine, we know he's Santa, but he's not your grandpa. And I said, oh my gosh, what else do I need to do? Well, the good news is my birthday is in January. And you know who goes to birthday parties? Second graders of my class and my grandpa. So Santa came, but this time he was not in his regalia. He was in his normal getup, right? He's got his, his pants and his little suspenders, well, bigger suspenders. He was a jolly man, and um, his just normal button-down shirt, and everyone said, oh my gosh, that's Santa, and I said, yes, <laughs> I told you this, and they said, okay, okay, we finally believe you, and they were nice to me the rest of the year, because, <laughs> hello, I have the inn, so the other cool thing about being Santa's granddaughter, though, is that I got to help him out quite a bit, so I got to be his elf, and I had the best getup, okay? I had like green pants and a red Powerpuff Girl shirt that I thought was just 
Like, it was it. I was awesome. I was wearing a Powerpuff Girls shirt. I was an elf. Everything was great. And my dad and Santa's neighbor would come with us, and we would go to these houses of these wonderful families. And my dad and Santa's neighbor would get up on the roof, and they'd clomp around, and they'd jingle some bells. And Santa and I, being his elf, would go up to the door, knock on it, and the kids would answer and be like, oh my gosh, it's Santa. Are those the reindeer? And they said, yes, of course. Of course it's the reindeer. And it was the coolest thing. But of course, they didn't believe that he was Santa until they said, well, okay, the reindeer are here, but if they're yours, what are their names? And he said, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, you know, he did the whole spiel, and the kids are like, oh my gosh, you are Santa. And he's like, yes. Now, the other cool thing with being Santa's granddaughter is, of course, you get to spend every Christmas with Santa. So my grandpa would drive up from Arizona uh, to St. George, Utah, which is where we eventually moved. And one thing about my family is that we're like really big on Christmas lights, and that is a whole other holiday hullabaloo story. Um, but we were on TV for our lights. It's uh, The Great Christmas Light Fight, season two, episode one. You can see it on Amazon. It's only like $3. It's totally worth it. Um, <laughs> but before we were on that, my grandpa would come, and he'd get up in his Santa regalia, and he would be outside for hours just seeing all of these people who come by to see our lights. And he had a little setup so that all of these families could come and say, hey, Santa, you know, this is what I want for Christmas. And of course, ask him the reindeer's names because that's what you do to prove Santa. And if they didn't come out of their car, he would, <laughs> he would literally like chase them down to be like, get your candy cane. And I mean... You can't say no to Santa when he's trying to give you a candy cane. So he would chase him down. It was amazing. And of course, eventually we have to eat. So my grandpa and I would often go to Denny's. Love Denny's. Super bird, where it's at. But um, when we were there, I would get to ask him all of these questions. And there were a couple things I learned about Santa that I bet none of you knew. For one... Uh, he was actually almost kidnapped by a hobo when he was a kid. Made it out alive, everything was okay. And he also got along with everybody, including a local circus troupe that would come through town. And him and his brother would get to know these guys and listen to their stories. So Santa, of course, was friends with the bearded lady and the lion tamer and the ring master person, and it was awesome. And every time we would leave from Denny's. My grandpa would pull out an envelope. I never actually saw it was in this envelope, but I'm pretty sure it was like a really good tip because after that, every time we came, it, the servers weren't just like, oh, yay, it's Santa. It was, oh my gosh, it's Santa, which means this is going to be a good Christmas. <laughs> and when I got older, I actually moved out of town. I worked at Disney World for about a year, and I found this ornament that I was super excited to give to my grandpa because what in the world do you get Santa? Like, it's really hard to get him things, but I was really excited about this. It was Mickey Mouse dressed up as Santa. It was basically our family in a little nutshell ornament. And unfortunately, I was not able to give that to him because he did pass away before that Christmas. But the good news is, 
When I have that ornament and I look at it now, I get to remember that I got to bring Santa to show and tell, that I was his helper and I got to be his elf, that he made all of these people happy, and that I am Santa's granddaughter. Thank you. Uh, so, our final storyteller for the evening, Kate O'Mealy, uh, who survived growing up in the lone, as the lone introvert in a massive, raucous Irish Catholic family on the East Coast. Now she lives a life that is much closer to her natural and desired state as an aspiring herbalist living in a small apartment on the beach with her cats. After living in Juneau on and off for 10 years, she hoped Alaska might give her some chill, but so far... Apparently no such luck. Tonight she shares one of many silly childhood memories about her loud Irish family that gifted her a brazen East Coast personality, living firmly in her bones. Welcome to the stage, Kate O'Mealy. Thank you very much. When I was younger, I was about nine, I was at Christmas dinner with my family, and I made direct, intentional, angry eye contact with my Aunt Molly, and she caught fire. (laughs) (laughs) And I can explain, (laughs) and I will explain, Um, but I think it's more fun and probably a little necessary for me to give you some backstory on what it's like to be with my family. Um, We were raised Irish Catholic, and we are the kind of Irish that, of the 27 adults around that Christmas dinner table, um, our surnames included O'Mealy, O'Shea, O'Reilly, O'Flaherty, O'Flannery, McCormick, McGinty, you get it. (laughs) We're so Irish that we, you couldn't forget it, even if we, even if we would let you. (laughs) And we're the kind of Catholic that of the 27 adults around that table, 24 of them were cisgendered women, and of those 24 women, 14 of them were named Mary, after after Mary, mother of God, bless her soul. (laughs) So my mother's name was Mary Jean, her sister's names were Mary Honora and Mary Catherine, and then we had a Mary Shannon, Mary Fran. You get it. We're that kind of Catholic. Um, And of the older women in my family, all of them kind of had a a little bit of an Irish lilt, and I don't. I don't naturally, but when I talk about them, it comes out. So forgive me if that pops out every once in a while during this story. I wonder often if being Irish Catholic is very different than being any other kind of Catholic. Um, like, for example, we're the kind of Irish Catholic that is very traditional. We had a lot of rules. The rules were very followed. Um, my grandmother specifically had a lot of rules. She would very often say, you don't call the Lord unless you need him, um, which meant you could never, ever, ever use the Lord's name in vain, ever. Don't you dare call him unless you need him. And we were the kind of Irish Catholic that had traditional um, wakes and funerals, and this is where I think we're weird, because at these wakes and funerals, there came to be this weird tradition where people would, like, 
steal stuff out of the casket and sneak other stuff in. And some of you are thinking Dairy Girls, and it's exactly, exact, exactly like that. And it was really weird to see that scene, but um, <laughs> this ultimately meant that like none of my dead relatives are buried with their rosaries, and all of them are buried with Irish whiskey and a coarse light. <laughs> and this, it's this, um, this situation, this is like the one time that I will hear my Irish grandmother use the Lord's name in vain. Every time she hears that the rosary is stolen, she's like, Jesus, 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 Mary and Joseph. And we're like, Nana, don't, don't you call him unless you need him. And she's like, heathens, all of you. I'm the only one in heaven. Mark my words. And um, so it's then when I would hear her use the Lord's name in vain. And then one other time during this Christmas dinner when my aunt caught on fire. So here we go. This is what happened. We're at dinner. And we've reached the peak of post-dinner where there's been a lot of wine, and the topic of conversation is political because, and specifically, it's about the Clinton administration because it's 1998, and if you know, you know. So it's heated, it's loud. The Lord's name is in vain, all over. And every once in a while, you can hear my Nana be like, I don't you dare, but she can't keep a rein on the discipline. Like, it's Jesus, Mary, and Joseph all over the place. And um, I'm nine years old at this point. I'm really quite, at this point, a quiet child. Um, I like to listen. It's some of my fondest memories now to think back on this raucous table of 27 adults plus six grandchildren just all around this table. Um, But at this time, I'm probably counting down the minutes until I can sneak under the table and go read a book. Like, I am very introverted and counting the seconds until I can get out of there. But we've reached this point in the evening where it's now an argument between the three men at the table and all the rest of the 24 women. And the three men have no chance. They've never had a chance. But Lord, they think they still have a chance. (laughs) And my Aunt Molly's husband He raises his voice higher, louder than everybody else, and he goes, you know what? I'm just, I'm not stupid, you know? And it's at this point that nine-year-old Kate decides to talk, and I don't know why. Um, But at this moment, I look up, and I go, oh, you're not stupid? You're doing a really good impression. And I don't know why I said it. I don't know why. I must have read it somewhere or seen it on television or, like, heard my cousin say it or heard my mom say it. I don't know. Um, but in any case, raucous laughter through the whole table. <laughs> it's a hit. Um, but my Aunt Molly is, like, having a bad night. <laughs> so she claps back at me, and she goes, oh, really? He's probably imitating you. More raucous laughter. And I glare at her with as much vitriol as a nine-year-old who still needs a booster seat at the dinner table can manage. (laughs) And at the very same time, one of the candles falls onto her Irish wool fair aisle sweater, and girl, she lights up. (laughs) And no one really notices, because presumably they're all still laughing at the joke Molly made at the expense of her nine-year-old niece. Ha, 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 she's so funny. And now she's on fire. (laughs) So 
I'm the only one looking at her, and no one notices that she is actually on fire for several seconds, and that's all that fire needs, just several seconds. So the fire is going up her left arm, and then it catches on her right arm, and it's getting close to her chest, and it's flirting with her hair, right? And at this point, I'm not sure where my brain was. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but I do know that I didn't say anything. <laughs> And I do know that it wasn't me who brought attention to the fact that Molly was on fire. It was my grandmother. She goes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then Aunt Molly's husband goes, ow, oh. And he takes a napkin and very gently puts the fire out, doesn't ask her how she is or if she's okay, and then goes back into conversation with my grandfather. <laughs> but he's not an idiot. They're divorced now. And my Aunt Molly's livid. She's looking at me, and she goes, Jesus Christ, Katie, like I did it, like I actually willed the candle to fall over. <laughs> and I'm panicking because I'm a nine-year-old introvert that is overstimulated at a 27-people deep dinner table at Christmas, and I can hear everyone around go, Katie, did Katie set her on fire? Did Katie do it? Did Katie, did Katie do it? And I'm plotting my escape under the table so I can get the hell out of there when my Nana, who's got my back, she stands up, she points her finger at my Aunt Molly, and she goes, don't you dare call him unless you need him. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on December 13th, 2022. The theme for the evening was Holiday Hullabaloo and proceeds went to the Juno Refugee Relief Fund. Special thanks to Kuneh Hidi Northern Light United Church and The Rookery for supporting the event. Thanks also to Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And of course, to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us January 10th for our next show with the theme of Never Again. This program is a production of the Mudrooms Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeffrey Smith, Crystal Briette, David Noon, Rich Moniak, Jane Hale, Summer Coster, and me, Kristen Rankin. Have a good night. Although it's been said many times. My-